It's Wednesday, November 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Are you worn out with the amount of political news coming out daily? As the impeachment inquiry continues in Washington, many Americans are finding it difficult to keep up with the latest and what to believe, and it is causing them to tune out. Fake information is part of the problem, but so is the growing amount of opinion and news. Sabrina Tavernisi, reporter for the New York Times, joins us for the fog of political news. Next, while the fog of daily political news can get very thick, we did have a full day of impeachment hearings with more on the way. On Tuesday, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, Russia advisor to Mike Pence Jennifer Williams, Ambassador Kurt Volker, and senior NSC official Tim Morrison all testified. Abby Marshall, reporter at Politico, joins us to break down the testimony. Finally, the last three weeks have not been kind to reboots at the box office. Dr. Sleep, Terminator Dark Fate, and Charlie's Angels were all flops. Part of the problem of why these reboots are not getting any traction is that many of these appear to nostalgia for projects that came out about 20 years ago, and younger moviegoers are not as familiar or attached to them as older audiences. Jeremy Fuster, reporter at The Wrap, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Lots of opinion-based news and this real decline that you see in trust of public institutions, including the media, has kind of added up to just this incredible exhaustion, numbness and kind of confusion. Joining us now is Sabrina Tavernisi, reporter for The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Sabrina. Thanks a lot. We're going through a very tense political moment right now as the impeachment hearings are ongoing and who knows how far it will go. We have a big 2020 election coming next year. There's a lot of information going around, but it seems we're also at a point where while all of this information is so important, people are in a fog and tuning news out. They don't really know what to trust, who to go to, to be an authority on some of this stuff. And it just seems that a lot of people are just happy with not knowing anything at all. Sabrina, tell us a little bit about what's going on right now, how nobody's believing anything. It's kind of a combination of a number of different things. I was a reporter in Russia for a long time in the early 1990s and started to notice at some point that there was just so much out there news-wise and digitally, and there were fake things happening, and there were some real things too, but just a lot of news that was just crowding into people's consciousness. And at some point, people sort of started to tune that out. And essentially, I've seen the same thing happening here in the United States. So lots of opinion-based news, lots of kind of editorializing, cable news going all the time, and this real decline that you see in trust of public institutions, including the media, has kind of added up to just this incredible exhaustion, numbness, and kind of confusion among many, many Americans about what they're looking at out there. They try, they want to be good citizens, they want to keep in touch with what's going on in the news, but they're just finding the task of that too overwhelming because they're not quite trusting the versions that they see. They know that they sort of have to cross-check things, they know that things have spin, and they're just feeling like, Ugh, I can't really tell at the end of the day what's real. So I'm going to just not tune in at all. 
Yeah, I think one of the quotes in your story, someone said it's a freaking day job nowadays just to keep up with stuff. Just there's so much to absorb, whether it's casual news, whether it's local news, whether it's national news, whether it's a subsect of the national news, which is more impeachment stuff that we're looking at. And I mean, you could even say that some of the tactics of the president are working where he casts doubt on things that aren't favorable to him. Fake news. Hey, don't trust these people. Traditional news media is against me. Some of those tactics are working so much so, you know, it's kind of evident in this. People don't want to keep up with it. It's just too much. Exactly. And you bring up the president, and that's also absolutely true. I mean, you know, he has this kind of tactic, very much in the style of Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, that just says, hey, the world is a really confusing place out there, and there's all this fake stuff. I can guide you. I'm what's real. Look at me, and I'm the one that's going to guide you out of this crazy fake soup, if you will. I think we like to think that everybody is kind of tuned in to the impeachment hearings and listening to the news and trying to follow along. But you have a lot of Americans in this position. I mean, there was a poll that I cited in my piece that showed 47% of Americans say they can't tell which piece of news they're looking at is actually real. So it's this kind of confusion because there's such a profusion of information and because they know there is fake information. The president points that out. The president creates it himself. And then I also talked to some social scientists who had looked at the effect of just the mere saying the words fake news. That sort of created this additional layer of chipping away at public trust in news generally. So it's just this real decline in trust. And that's a really difficult and potentially dangerous thing for a society. I mean, in Russia, it essentially meant that you had no common set of facts. You had no common concept or understanding of who we are as a society, where we want to go. And you can become frozen in that way. You don't have a public conversation at all. You mentioned that Associated Press poll, another number from that, there was about 60% of Americans say that they regularly see conflicting reports about the same set of facts from a different sources. And that's kind of where we get into this whole cable news land where you'll see things like MSNBC and CNN have one take on something and then Fox News maybe a completely different set of takes on the same things. That's just more confusion for a lot of people, you know, because let's say you're reading something and you see something happen okay, I agree with it one way, maybe you'll turn on an opposing view and then they're spinning it completely different. Then if they get into your head a little bit, then you really don't know where you're going anymore with it. And that's one of the confusing parts is this kind of goes to the overflow of media that we have. There's just so much out there. That's exactly right. I talked to one retired pharmaceutical executive in uh, upper middle class suburb of Raleigh, North Carolina, and he was a pretty open minded guy and said, look, I'm trying, I'm trying, but I flipped from one channel and I see one version to another channel, and I, it's the same set of facts and completely different version. How am I supposed to make sense of this? What am I supposed to think? Sabrina Tavernisi, reporter for The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. It was also clear that if Ukraine pursued an investigation into the 2016 elections, the Bidens and Burisma, it would be interpreted as a partisan play. This would undoubtedly result in Ukraine losing bipartisan support, undermining U.S. national security, and advancing Russia's strategic objectives in the region. Joining us now is Abby Marshall, reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Abby. Thank you for having me. Day three of the impeachment hearings are underway. We heard from Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinman. He's the lead Ukraine expert on the National Security Council. We also heard from Jennifer Williams, who's a State Department employee 
who was detailed to Vice President Pence on Eurasia matters. That was in the morning. In the afternoon, we heard from Ambassador Kurt Volker and former National Security Council and Russia advisor Tim Morrison. There's a lot of testimony going on. Abby, start us off in the morning when we heard from Alexander Vindman and Jennifer Williams and give us some of the top takeaways from the testimony. Starting out this morning, we had Vinman and Williams, and they were two of the people who were on the call. So they had a firsthand account of what happened between President Trump and Zelensky, and both of them separately went to their superiors and raised concerns that they had about what was going on in the call. Both kind of said it was improper conduct that happened on the call. And Schiff kind of apologized to the witnesses on behalf of the president and some other like conservative commentators who have gone after perhaps the character or the loyalty of the two, which is why it's interesting right now that Morrison is testifying because his words were used in the official White House tweet today, kind of questioning the character and judgment of Vindman. Vindman had been the attack saying he was born in Ukraine. He came to the United States when he was three. He became a naturalized citizen and went into the military. But in conservative circles, people were portraying him as maybe he has more loyalty to Ukraine than the United States. And for Williams' part, I think the president might have tweeted out that she was a never-Trumper. So those questions mm -hmm. came up during the testimony, and they were both asked, are you both never-Trumpers? And they both said, no, not at all. It's a great honor to work for the country, and that's what they were doing. So uh, kind of a drawback to Maria Ivanovich, who was directly attacked by the president also. Most of the questions were directed at Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. Although Williams was on the call, she reported what she heard on the call to Vice President Mike Pence. And then she basically said, I don't know if he ever really read the readout or did anything with that. So most of the questions focused on Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. What did we learn from him? He did say that he reported his concerns to a National Security Council, a lawyer there, and Republicans were making an issue of whether he went outside of the chain of command because he should have went to Tim Morrison first, and that's not exactly what he did. He um, said that he alerted White House lawyer John Eisenberg to Sondland's push for some investigations during a July meeting at the White House with Ukrainian officials. He said he reported the comments to Eisenberg without hesitation. The big line that people are pulling from is, it was my duty to report my concerns to the proper people in the chain of command. And they were kind of looking at who was he reporting to? Was it proper? Et cetera, et cetera, which gets into the questions of did he have a separate agenda that a lot of the Republicans were going after, saying that it's all part of a conspiracy to take down the president. One of the interesting moments that came that I thought probably fared better in Republican circles it has to do with the readout of the call, uh, the transcript. And how we all remember the headlines that it was placed into this top secret server. Vinman said there was really nothing nefarious about that. People said, hey, we just want to limit its access to a smaller group of people, probably to avoid leaks. And he said he didn't really mm -hmm. think anything of it. So I think that one might work a little bit better in Republican circles. But still, he did express concern over what was going on in the call, that there seemed to be this pressure campaign against Ukraine for them to do these investigations. And that was another point that we put in our article, the not nefarious line, but also he just kind of was like, it's, you know, it's not a big deal when he saw the transcript without the two. He said when he first saw the transcript without the two substantive items that he had attempted to include, he didn't see it as nefarious. So you're right. That probably does bode better in the Republican circles. What do we know about the latter part of the afternoon? This has to do with testimony from Kurt Volker and Tim Morrison. Kurt Volker was part of the group who worked with Rudy Giuliani to help push Ukraine to announce 
these investigations. And Morrison himself basically said he was concerned how the contents of the call would be playing out. These were both witnesses that Republicans wanted to call, that they wanted their testimony public. This is the first time we're seeing witnesses that the Republicans have called. And Kurt Volker is kind of in a bind. He was the first witness to testify behind closed doors. And during that time, he said he didn't really see any indication that Trump had done anything improper in relation to Ukraine and aid and things along those lines. But after witnesses continued to give their side of the events and, you know, a more troubling view of that, Volker seems to have a new perspective in this testimony. He keeps saying that he was not in the loop. He seems to be distancing himself a little bit from the investigation as it goes on, saying that he hadn't really seen the transcript of the call or had known what was going on prior to the public release. So he seems to be backtracking a little bit there. And the same would go with Morrison. He kind of went back on in his deposition behind closed doors. Like I mentioned earlier, he questioned the judgment of Vinman, which was used in a White House tweet today from the official Twitter account. And he said today publicly that he did not seek to go after the character or integrity of anyone in the National Security Council. So we kind of are seeing a little bit more reserved than what was previously reported in like those closed door depositions. Abby Marshall, reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I think Generation Z may not have an interest in seeing Terminator Dark Fate. At least I think a lot of them would know what Terminator is. I also think this is much recognition of the Charlie's Angels name with younger audiences as there is for Terminator. And there wasn't a star power in this movie to give another reason for them to see the movie. Joining us now is Jeremy Fuster, reporter at The Wrap. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Thank you very much for having me. This past weekend, we had another flop at the box office. It was Sony's Charlie's Angels. It came in with $8.35 million gross domestically, and that's off of a $48 million budget that they had. It was actually the third film in as many weeks that tanked in theaters. These reboots are just not doing very good. Jeremy, tell us a little bit about why reboots in general aren't doing so well sometimes, and obviously we'll talk about Charlie's Angels because they're the most recent casualty. Well, the three films in question, along with Charlie's Angels, are Terminator Dark Fate and Doctor Sleep. Three very different films, different studios, different backgrounds for each of them. But the one thing that connects them all is that these are all attempts to revive interest in a property that is decades old. And for these films, one of the big problems is that for moviegoers, well under the age of 25, and especially for teenagers, they just don't have that nostalgic weight or cultural recognition. And I think this is especially the case for Charlie's Angels, because it's been 16 years since the last time there was a Charlie's Angels movie. And the only other thing that's been around since then in terms of Charlie's Angels was a 2011 TV series that lasted eight episodes and no one remembers it. (laughs) Right, yeah. I also think this is much recognition of the Charlie's Angels name with younger audiences as there is for Terminator or even the case of Dr. Sleep with The Shining. It's just a very obscure genre, and there wasn't a star power in this movie to give another reason for them to see the movie. I was a big fan of the old Charlie's Angels, the McGee versions that had Cameron Diaz and Lucy Liu and Drew Barrymore. I loved those movies. And I also kind of felt that there was a sense of like, well, those are pretty fun. They didn't take themselves too seriously. 
why make another one? What's the purpose of doing another one? And I love Elizabeth Banks, and I know what she was trying to do here, but part of this was that the star power was not there at the height of the original Charlie's Angels. And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm talking about the ones from the early 2000s. That's when Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore, and Lucy Liu, they were at the height of their popularity. People really wanted to see them in movies. And right now, the cast that we have for the current one, yeah, not so much. Kristen Stewart was a little bit bigger, you know, a few years ago when the Twilight series was happening, but not so much anymore. It is a pity for Stewart because she's very strong. A lot of critics really enjoyed her in this movie, even if they may not have enjoyed the rest of it. And to promote the film, she was also on Saturday Night Live. And again, she received a lot of really positive reception there. I think people are starting to learn again just how funny she can be. But as you said, it has been seven years since the Twilight series ended. And she chose to take her career in a different direction. And it's been great for her. She's received a Cesar Award. She's had a lot of acclaim in a very different sphere of movie making. But unfortunately, when it came to Charlie's Angels, the trade-off was that people just didn't really have all that interest in her. It would have been interesting to see if this had been made in like 2013, right off of Twilight, whether more people would have been interested in it. But I think the fact that a lot of people just sort of vaguely remember her as the girl from Twilight just kind of shows how there's such little familiarity with what she's done over the last few years. Right. Another thing yeah. that figures into all of this is the ever-present Rotten Tomatoes score and other reviews. You know, a lot of people will go check a Rotten Tomatoes score before they even know too much more about a movie, and they'll make a determination straight off of that. I do think that the Rotten Tomatoes score did have a little bit of a way down on it, because this movie was very much focused on bringing a very specific demographic into theaters. And when that happens, you need stronger views to help spread out the scope to other demographics. In this case, the general consensus was Kristen Stewart's good, there's some humor, there's some action, but the general consensus seemed to be, that's eh, all right. And in this day and age, when people hear, eh, it's all right, yeah. unless they're super into this property, which not a lot of people were for Charlie's Angels, they're going to kind of maybe wait for Redbox if they're curious, but otherwise not buy a ticket for it. Elizabeth Banks, for her part, director, writer, producer, and star in the film here, she seemed to be pretty happy with it still. When we remove the box office factor, there's another discussion to be had about how it's only been in the last few years where women have had the chance to have this much control over a mainstream studio release. To be the writer, director, producer, and star of a movie, usually you'd have to be an indie film to even have a shot at doing that. But Elizabeth Banks got this opportunity, and no matter how the film performs, that can't be taken away from her. I think Banks is part of a larger trend that we're going to be seeing next year. Next year, there's a chance that women could be directing the top 10 highest grossing films of the year. Think about Mulan, Birds of Prey, Eternals. There's a lot of really, really big blockbusters that are going to be directed by women next year. And it could be the first time that the top 10 on the box office charts is 50-50 in terms of gender for directors. Jeremy Fuster, reporter at The Wrap. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.